you know, we wanted to recruit the best Montana kids if they were good enough to play division one basketball. I mean, and fortunately for me and for us, the, the state of Montana, though not that big in population, produced a lot of very good women's basketball players. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back. Today we take a look at a quintessential Montana story. Robin Selvig was the head coach of the University of Montana Lady Grizz basketball team for nearly 40 years. In that time, he amassed an incredible 865 wins and countless other accolades. But more importantly, he built a community of inclusion and empowerment that positively transformed the lives of so many young women. That community is documented in a beautiful new film titled The House That Rob Built. I'm joined today by the film's co-director, writer, and producer, Megan Harrington, as well as the coach himself. Megan, Coach Selvig, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So first off, the film is amazing. I watched it with my wife and two young daughters. Wow, congratulations. And you've just landed nationwide distribution. That is really exciting. Yes, it's a, it's a really big deal. It speaks um, volumes really to Rob, what he created, what the fans at the University of Montana, what his assistant coaches, you know, really what this community did for a distributor like 1091 to pay attention to this film. So it's really a, a nod to the university, to the state and to the program. Indeed. So Megan, you played for Coach Selvig, your UM graduate. You know, tell us a little bit about the origin story of this film. How how'd the idea come to pass and how did you go about making it happen? Well, the idea came when I was an independent producer. I work for Family Theater Productions now. They acquired the film, thankfully, and it allowed us to get to the finish line. But when I was thinking about ideas, Rob was still coaching. He had coached a lot of mothers and daughters. I thought that was really interesting. Maybe there was something there. And then he retired. So once Rob retired and that I knew that over a hundred women were coming back, he did not know that to surprise him for a celebration, literally just three months after, after he retired, um, we said, well, you know, if we're going to tell this story, then we have to capture that moment because it's not something that you can gather everybody again and have them, you know, pretend to go through those emotions. It was really needed to happen, but it's a very expensive to, to any shoot. Um, so I was talking with my brother um, who's at the business school as well and said, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it's a lot of money. I don't, I don't have that right now because we also have to develop the questions and the story. And he said, if you're going to do it, you have to do it right. And that means bringing the right team. And thank, thank goodness he, he encouraged that. Um, and he also helped uh, financially um, him and a brother and a sister to help make that happen just for that initial phase. So that really got us going and we knew something special was happening. So that was the the launching pad was the reunion. Fantastic. And so coach, as this thing was sort of developing, you're early into retirement. Like why is it something you decided to say yes to? Well, I couldn't say no to Megan. This, this is, <laughs> this is her deal. This, this was all her idea. She came to me and I thought she was joking at first because she's been known to pull some pranks on me in the, in the past. And that, uh, Turns out she was serious. And I said, sure, okay. And I had no idea what really 
all that goes into making of a film like this. And I've learned so much about making a documentary and the scoring, the music. I mean, it's been a, a educational for me and, and uh, an awful lot of work, but Megan's team was, was great. They were, they were great to work with. And, uh, you know, she, they put together a story and I like to say, well, it's not necessarily a story about me. It's a story about women's basketball, the growth of women's sports opportunity and, and all the things I was fortunate to be involved with because of the timing of my, me getting into coaching. Yeah, let's maybe talk about that. We'll go back to those early days. I mean, you took the job when you were 25 years old, 1978. Women's basketball certainly isn't what it is today. Tell us about those early days on the job and what the landscape was like. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I, you know, I took a, a high school job, which at first I thought I was taking a men's high school job. And it turns out the, the coach there did, who was going to retire didn't. And the superintendent asked me if I'd take the women. I said, yeah, I'll take the women. I wanted to coach and turned out to be a pretty fortunate move for me. So I had three years of high school in my background. And then when the job at the university came open, women's basketball was just getting started. You didn't know where it was going to go collegiately. You didn't know where it was going to go at all. But Title IX had started kicking in a little bit. And anyway, both Janie, my wife, and I, uh, we loved Missoula, the University of Montana. So getting an opportunity to come back here was was something we we thought we'd like to do. And so uh, jumped into it. I think we had 12 fee waivers for scholarships at that point and uh, obviously didn't, didn't have lots of external things. We just didn't, we didn't have much, but we had a, a program and uh, other schools, more schools were adding it. I mean, the title IX thing kicked in a little bit in the next few years to where our support grew more and more. Although I, I do appreciate the university. I think, I really do think at the University of Montana, the administration then, Harley Lewis was the AD, but I think they they went willingly into adding the women's sports and, and providing funding for the women's sports, where I don't think that was happening everywhere. There was a battle between men's and women's departments at lots of places. And so we grew fairly rapidly in that regard. And I just, you, you look back and things went well. I, I mean, it was no great plan I had. It was, I wanted to coach. I'm going to coach these young women and the, the leagues changed and there was more opportunity and it went well. Indeed. I mean, Megan, I was sort of thinking about that throughout the, um, throughout watching the film. I mean, you know, there's no real villain in the story. I mean, the way I sort of conceived it was the only real villain is time, just knowing that this, this run sort of eventually would come to an end. How did you approach kind of thinking about the arc of the story and you had to have made hard choices about what themes to press on and what ones to set aside. Like how, how did you kind of approach, uh, yeah, the, the overall kind of conception of the story? Well, it was definitely a team team approach and the nice balance was I played the program and I knew the program. So the others were outside of the program. So it was a good balance of, okay, that's not going to work. This is going to work. You know, we wanted it to play for a national audience not only Montana and certainly wanted Montana to be proud of this story and to really speak to these bigger themes. But what was very important, which it was to cover his, his entire tenure as a coach. So 40 years. And, and that decision right away is a big one because you could easily have taken Wisconsin. You could have easily just taken Oregon state. 
you could have taken Stanford, you could have taken two games, but it was really important because this program was built on the backs of women from generations, starting from the very beginning and what that looked like and the growth of women's basketball as one of the other stories we're telling. It was important to tell the entirety of it. So that was a, a big decision. And when we stuck with that decision and you're, you're looking at 60 minutes, like you said, you're going to have to make difficult decisions, stories that were just so great themes that you wanted to unpack more, but you couldn't. So that decision to tell the the entire story really framed what choices we had to make from there. Indeed. You know, there's so many of those sort of games that you point out and, you know, I guess there's stories within stories and yeah, those hard choices must've been tough. Talking about hard choices. I mean, one, one theme that comes up in the film coach is, you know, at one point you had the opportunity to, leave the University of Montana and go coach um, with your former coach at, at, at uh, Michigan State, Judd Heathcote, you decided not to. You decided not to take the leap and, um, and to coach men. Like, talk about those decisions and how you approach those in your career. Yeah, I mean, I was flattered that Judd uh, called me, uh, you know, see if I had an interest in getting to Michigan State and uh, as a men's assistant. And I, I never really seriously considered doing it at all. Uh, um, I... You know, I, I had a team. I was a head coach, and and uh, that that that's really what I, I wanted to do. And I and I, I honestly, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't consider that a move up. There may have been more money involved at the at, at the time, but I could not have told the ladies I was coaching that I was moving up to men's. That just doesn't sound right to me, and it didn't sound right to me. Plus, we loved the the university. We love Missoula. We were raising a family here. There's a lot of things that go into, are you just going to uh, up and leave? And so I, I had, uh, I was part of something that was growing and that was exciting. And, and we were a nationally competitive program uh, just a few years into it, you know, when it was, and, and that was exciting to me and maybe we can do more and all, all those things. So that was, like I said, very nice of Judd. He did fine with magic without me down there in Michigan State, so I guess he survived too. Sure. Yeah, I mean, thinking about that, you know, this notion like in, in, in athletics or whatever it is, like we're sort of conditioned to sort of achieve and go after the next thing and to be sort of feeling like, hey, you've got something special here that you're building, but also you've got some stability in the community with your family and, and sort of just to be mindful of all those pieces and the risks associated with disrupting it. I mean, that has to take a lot of poise. I mean, coaches sort of seem like they're on a treadmill as much as athletes are. And, and, you know, that must've, that must've just taken a lot of mindfulness to be able to, to, to do that. Yeah. I know, but that it really was easy for me. I I never seriously considered going someplace else. You know, people say, well, you had to have offers or this, that, but I never seriously pursued, going someplace else. So I guess I was just content here. I like the challenge here. You like to think, well, maybe you can take the next step. You can get a team to the final four and all those things, which maybe is true as, as time went on, you know, obviously more resources, access to more talented kids and then at the bigger places, but we were nationally competitive early on. I mean, we played a lot of NCAA tournaments. We won some NCAA games and, you know, I was always thinking oh, we can, maybe we can, maybe we could do better. And, and, and uh, it, it was just, the process was, was fun. And, and I was attached to my players, my school. Uh, they were, I, I had 
tremendous athletes and, and great people to coach and competitive. And, you know, we were just a team on the same journey. I think we were trying to do the same thing. And there was a lot of people involved in it. And I got to share that. So Megan, talk about your experience playing for coach in, in your time at the university. Oh, geez. I, it was, you know, ever since I was a little girl um, in fourth grade, I wrote a poem. Turns out I'm not a poet, but I did, did write one and I still have it, but that it was to play for the Lady Grizz. And that really was all I wanted to do when I was little. And what was funny is I, did, I wasn't alone. I mean, there was thousands of little girls around this state that that was their dream as well. So the fact I got to live that out, I will always be grateful for, for the mentorship and the guidance of being able to play for up and wear the uniform at the University of Montana will, was incredible. And one thing I didn't totally understand to the level that I do now after having worked on the film is there weren't other places across the country, or they weren't a lot at the time that had little girls looking up to other division one female athletes in their hometown where thousands and thousands and thousands of people went to watch them play. I thought that was normal <laughs> and working on this film, that wasn't normal. Um, that was unique and special. And what happened here in Missoula was extraordinary. And I have come to appreciate that in a new way. I will always loved the fans. I always knew it was a special place, but in the history of women's basketball, we have a place and it's, um, it's unique. 9,000 people in 1988 showing up for an interstate game, 9,000 people showing up for Stanford. Well, you can maybe understand, okay, you got the number one team, but 9,000 people still it's sold out. They're hanging from the rafters. And in 1995 and in 2004 sold out, sold out. And those are just a few of the high games, but the fans showed up you know, that's what made it special is they showed up and they, they made us work hard and they were proud of us. And it was it was because, you know, and Robbie always is like, oh, they just, you know, they they just suddenly came to the games. He was out in his early days getting them to come watch us. You know, he played. So, you know, he, he was familiar to the community, but he was out pounding the pavement, going to events. Please come watch the ladies. And and they did. Let's talk about that, you know, the Lady Grizz piece. I mean, I, I had this interesting experience a couple of years ago with my younger daughter, Charlotte. We were at a Lady Grizz game and she asked, like, why, why are the, why are there the Lady Grizz and then the Grizz? And she had a really kind of thoughtful question about it, thinking like, thinking about it from the standpoint of, well, the Lady Grizz aren't the same as the Grizz. And she wrote a letter to university president and it got forwarded to Kent Haslam and Coach Swain. And you know, the premise of the question was that the Lady Grizz were something different, lesser in a way. Like, And the response was, no, we are tremendously proud of the Lady Grizz moniker. It is something different and it's unique to the basketball team relative to the other women's sports. Talk about that process, Coach, of like I don't, I don't want to dismiss it by using the term branding, but like you built something distinctive and unique at a time where there wasn't a lot happening in that area. Yeah. And there was some controversy over that, or there has been since I looked at it as a positive thing all the time. I, I it was a, a way to differentiate. I mean, if you're going to go read the Grizzlies, won a basketball game, well, there's two Grizzlies teams. So one was the Lady Grizz. And I, and I, I looked at Lady as a, a positive term. I remember talking to Betsy Dirksen, the soccer coach, who's a good friend and did tremendous here. And she didn't like the term Lady Grizz. And, and after we visited, I think she understood more how I looked at it. She, 
she thought it meant the old prim and you know. And I go, no, 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 no. These ladies are a little different when they're play, playing. But anyway, I think initially it was to separate and just have your your own identity in a way, because there was a both men's and women's program. Now there isn't a men's softball team or a men's soccer team, and, and I mean there is. And and I think around the country there was a few that did that, and and some that didn't. And in my mind, it was positive. I know there's some disagreement on that, but it certainly wasn't to make uh, differentiate them as different kinds of athletes or competitors or, you know, so that was an interesting time. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Raging wildfires have scorched a record number of the acres and killed at least 31 people. continues to climb from those people. devastating wildfires. In- Last year, wildfires scorched a landmass nearly five times the size of Yellowstone National Park. It was the largest area burned since reliable records began. Fires are getting bigger and hotter and more devastating than ever before. But what all that fire means and what to do about it depends on who you ask. The experience of a forest taking fire is really something. It's not only a gift to us, but it's more more of a gift to the land. There will always be fear of fire, I, I know that, and I don't pretend there won't be, but in certain situations, there shouldn't be. I'm Justin Angle, and for the last couple years, I've been talking to scientists, historians, and firefighters themselves to hear their stories. You owe it to the guys that died. I wanted to figure out, how did we get here? We're going to knock fire out of the landscape. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. It was a crazy ambition. And where do we go? It just, knowledge is is freaking power. I'll talk about it in a calm way, but this is me hitting the panic button. Am I making any difference here with the science? (laughs) That's what I wonder sometimes. This is Fireline a six-part podcast series from Montana Public Radio and the University of Montana College of Business about what wildfire means for the West, our planet, and our way of life. This is Anne Helen Peterson, and I am a senior culture writer at BuzzFeed News, and you're listening to A New Angle. For sure. And one of the other main themes of the film is you know, the, the, the two words of inclusion and empowerment, and, and one way that really manifests in a special way is the number of Native American athletes that you brought into the family and um, had on the team and played prominent roles on the team. Coach, talk about that. Like, what was the, you know, how did you find these, these, these young women? How did you engage with their families and their communities in order to make them feel like they could come to the university and, 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 and thrive? Well, you know, number one is, uh, you know, we wanted to recruit the best Montana kids if they were good enough to play division one basketball. I mean, and fortunately for me, and for us, the, the state of Montana, though not that big in population, produced a lot of very good women's basketball players, a credit to the high school coaching in the state. I mean, the number of D1 players was, is tremendous 
for a population of 800,000 people or something at that time. And so, uh, and then Native Americans are a big part of this state and its history and uh, their culture I've always been fascinated with. And, but mainly it's that I wanted to get the best players. And there were some very good Native American players. And I, I would have felt horrible not giving an opportunity to someone who was good enough, number one, whether they were Native American, white, black, whatever it was. But since we are the University of Montana, you know, I, I felt the need. And, and, and actually, it was uh, when I first started, there wasn't much budget to recruit much anyway. So thankfully, Montana was providing them. But I, I feel, you know, I, I feel very good that uh, we've had a number of great kids, great players, great people. I've learned from them, my Native American players here. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it's something I guess uh, I'm, pr- I'm proud of them. And uh, it, it, I learned a lot and still I'm learning from listening to the, my players be interviewed, my Native American players for this film and for other things. You're still learning about them and their culture and what they went through. And, and you know, I almost look back at some and wish I could have, wish I'd understood better, you know, what maybe they were going through, but uh, they, they were, they were a, a blessing for our program. They were, they're great, uh, great addition to the university of Montana and lady Grizz basketball. Super. And, and Megan, talk about, you, you mentioned the, the, the party early on with a hundred players coming back, like talk about the process of getting, you know, your own teammates and then other sort of alums of the program to participate in this film. What was that all about? Well, it was <laughs> John Tippity, the co-director, and I were just laughing about that because there were, I mean, the amount of interviews done in one weekend could be on a Guinness Book of World Records <laughs> potentially for <laughs> there. Was, so when the when the reunion happened, what we how we tried to stagger it because there was no, you know, favorite person you know it was like we wanted to interview literally everybody budgetarily you know we'd hoped that that would be possible and and it just wasn't so in our first visit where we had the reunion what we tried to focus on was out of state and out of missoula because we knew we'd be back in missoula so we did that process first the reunion we went back and forth with who was coming with the organizers of the reunion which was really helpful for contact information and then we tried to set up in one location on different days so that the players would just come in to that or or, or um, if it wasn't a player, if it was a Stu Morrill or, or someone else involved with the program that was outside of the player or assistant coach. So it was a lot of moving pieces, a lot of different things that had to fall into place. You know, the, the, some things that, that happen that you can't predict or plan for, like a plane, plane's late and they're going up to the M. So we have to meet them halfway up the M, you know, get <laughs> certain shots, and uh, which I think they were glad they only had to go halfway. So it, it was a chess game. And, and everybody was very accommodating and, and really wanted to be part of this story. So even if they aren't in the movie, everybody hopefully feels that they're part of what story's being told. Indeed. And coach just a moment ago said, you know, he's still kind of learning from, from processing these interviews and and understanding people's stories. I mean, Megan, you had, as you mentioned before, your own experience here as a player, um, but that's just a thin slice of the nearly 40 years that coach spent here. Um, What were some of the, the, the surprises that you encountered when, when reporting out this story? Well, I think, Again, it was our, on the high, high level, it was understanding at the end of the day, oh my goodness, this is incredible. What happened in Missoula, Montana in women's basketball 
from the crowds to the players that started the program and the locations from which they came to Rob staying 38 years. I mean, that in and of itself is insane. His assistants, 32, 24, 22 years. That is also incredible. So all those things coming together for me as the story came together was this realization is sometimes what happens is you're in the middle of something or you're part of something, you don't really get how big it is. And then when you start to look at it holistically, you're like, my goodness, this is incredible. I think personally, some of the different interviews, you know, on a personal level, a lot of the girls, these girls went on to be one of the best players for Rob ever through the program, but player upon player, you know, what would you thank him for? And it was taking a chance on me. And I was like, I thought it was the only one he took a chance on, you know, Uh, but as it turns out, a lot of the women thought that themselves. And again, these were the best of the best. The fact that Rob hurt his knee really stuck with me when Judd Heathcote said that. He said if he had not hurt his knee, he thinks he would have played for professional basketball. And I remember thinking, I did not know that because Rob never, you know, he never told us that. And I always beat him in one-on-one or pig or whatever. <laughs> so, so it didn't really. Uh, <laughs> so when Judd said that, I thought, what if he had, you know, uh, the worst day of his life turned out to be the best day for an entire state, for hundreds of women, for a program, for a university, for a community because of that twist of fate. And I think that gave him a deeper appreciation looking back to when others hurt themselves or knees or other injuries. He was very, he was very uh, sympathetic and empathetic to that. And then, you know, when it, I think this is unusual for a coach, potentially at a division one level, certainly to with the amount of pressure that a coach has to endure. And I'm certain he, even though, you know, Rob has all these wins, it had to have been extremely stressful, his job. And to be concerned that a player didn't get in the game, even after a big win. Now he wasn't, Jane wasn't the only one who said that. Um, Rob said it himself as well, but it was that moment where you're like, oh my goodness, he actually, that bothered him. I think that is very telling as well. So all these human moments across the board of where the team showed up for each other, where individuals showed up for each other. It was really a reminder that this was, you were, you were part of something bigger than yourself and you really were part of a family. Yeah. Coach respond to that. I mean, you, you probably had some learnings yourselves learning, you know, you had your own perception of the athlete's experience, but you know, hearing their perception of their experience and, and that of their teammates had to have left a mark on you. Yeah, it certainly did. And, uh, you know, during the process, each year, each game, each season, you're just kind of going along. You, you don't sit back and reflect on things. When, when they got together for that retirement, it was really a really cool thing for me. It meant a lot to have that many kids there, but to watch them from, kids that played for me 30 to 40 years ago, the kids that were playing for me the last year kind of bond and they love, they were telling stories to each other and they shared a whole bunch of things in common that, that uh, even though there was quite a difference in age uh, and they laughed and I think they've become really good friends. Some of them that's so great to see. And basically it was, it's a whole bunch of people that were sharing their lives for a long period of time in a bond you know, grew between them. I like to say they, they loved getting together from the kids from a long time ago to today and tell lies about me. <laughs> and 
you know, <laughs> oh yeah, I remember when coach did this, you know, they made up most of that stuff, but they, they seemed to get a kick out of it. And, uh, but, but that really was the fun part of, uh, you know, the meaningful part of coaching. I mean, it's nice to win lots of games and you have probably more fun if you win lots of games, but you, you, you're going through so many things. She talked about being stressful for me, but look at young women aged 18 to 23. There's all kinds of things going on and all kinds of stresses and all kinds of things going on at that time of life. And you're just, you're a part of it, just like you are with your family. And uh, the, it, it's bound to, uh, to, be, to mean a lot of things that you can share uh, with each other. So they, you know, they talk, thank, thank you coach for what you've given us, but uh, you know, they all gave me as much or more. Indeed. I mean, thinking about that and you mentioned the, all the wins and certainly winning is more fun than losing, but in some ways the job's really simple. Right, to prepare the basketball team to perform on the court. But in other ways, like, and I think this is one of the most telling or, you know, the most impactful moments of the film is when, you know, there's just a, a huge swath of, of women that sort of tell the audience what they do now, whether it's a physician or a teacher or a scientist or whatever. Um, how did you kind of think about that piece? You know, you're, you're a key part of the student's education yeah, you need to prepare them to do a job on the court, but also you need to prepare them for whatever it is their next path down the road is. Because we're not talking about, you know, even a, even a world we're in now, the vast minority, you know, it's a minority of players that go on to play professionally, if that's a possibility. And even back then, during most of your years, it was probably exceedingly remote possibility. Yeah, well, I, I think it was important for them to understand because I, I really believe them. So I wanted basketball to enhance their college experience. It's a part of it. Uh, I don't think basketball, though it's, it's hard when you're in sports and they just like me grew up playing that basketball shouldn't define you. You know, you, you're not a basketball player first in life, even though it becomes awfully important. And I had no, you know, I, I, I was just, uh, wanting to add to their collegiate experience and, and you hope, you know, or I hope they all had a positive experience and that's difficult in sports. Everybody doesn't get to be a starter. Everybody doesn't achieve their dream of being all conference or, I mean, it's just, it doesn't happen that way. It, and, and uh, but yet it can be a positive experience and that's, that's what I hope it was. And, you know, there's so many of them that are good friends of mine now that, uh, well, they're all friends of mine, but some of them were close to good friends. I, I was most surprised by the fact that we had anybody become a movie producer, though I never <laughs> would have predicted that one. And, uh, you know, so who, who, who knows what can happen? I, I got to tell the story, though, when Megan was talking about because we laughed many times and we've told the story many times. But when I recruited Megan, she lived across the street from me, but she had a really good senior, really good. But, you know, we hadn't offered her. There was still plenty of time, but we hadn't offered her. And, you know, I don't I don't want keyed me in to say, no, we got to call. And, and, and So I called Megan and said, oh, this is Coach Selvig. I just want you to know I got a scholarship for you. And she and she said, "Really, this isn't something." <laughs> you know, she her family's a bunch of pranksters. She thought maybe it was a brother or something. I, I don't know what she thought, but she finally figured out. Yeah, this was Coach Selving. Yes, I did want her to be a Lady Grizz, and she said to me, "You will never regret this," and I never did. 
Wow. What a great way to close the deal, Megan. Nice job. And speaking of kind of closing the deal in a way, Megan, this is going to be an interesting time for you. I mean, getting a film like this into national distribution, but also kind of doing it uh, under this weird COVID world we're living in. I mean, screenings and theaters, isn't those aren't really on the menu right now. What's that experience been like for you, trying to trying to get the word out, but through different techniques and different channels? Well, it's presented certainly unique challenges. And like you said, we're not able to do in-person screenings or theatrical, which we had hoped to do, or an event in February when it released at the Fieldhouse. Thought that would be a, just a beautiful way to kick off the the release. And so those those things weren't weren't possible. So we figured out the route to take since it wasn't, and really a grassroots effort. And there are so many people in Montana who have really gone to bat for the film and really reached out to their networks. Some incredible graduates of departments like journalism, um, athletics, you know, you name it, wonderful people doing incredible things in the world of media that have opened their Rolodex and helped push this, this film. And those strategic partnerships have been huge. We hope that they'll continue to develop, but we really owe so many people for the fact that this film um, is out in the world. And, and on Friday, it was number one sports release on Amazon and, and on iTunes. And, you know, just to see those things, that's a that's a result of other people stepping in and helping. But it certainly was not our dark team alone doing anything. And that's how it works. That's how well the film was made. That's why it's out in the world. That's why Rob was so successful, because everything is about what the team that comes together towards a common goal. Indeed. So where would you direct people who are interested in learning more, um, seeing the film, buying it for themselves? Where would you want people to go? Justin, that is a great question. You will go to the house that Rob built movie.com, the house that Rob built movie.com right on the front. You'll see buy now, or you can go to the watch page and you can watch it digitally or order your own copy DVD or Blu-ray. Awesome. Well, final question for you both. We'll start with you, coach. What's kind of next on, uh, on your docket, you're, you're a few years into retirement. You've got this film under your belt. What's uh, what's happening next? Well, next, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, in fact, going to see her next week. We have a new granddaughter. Congratulations. In California and uh, my second granddaughter. And that's been a blessing to my life for sure. Sophia is six. And now we have Maya, who's just a couple weeks. So uh, this COVID thing's been tough for some of that stuff, too. But uh, I've really enjoyed being able to do more things at the drop of a hat and go spend time with family, my two sons, my parents who are still living in Outlook, Montana, and being able to get up there. So just things that you've you felt bad about having to try and find time to do through the busy schedule of having a job and coaching. So, And I, I thought my golf game would improve. It hasn't. I can't figure that out, but... Uh, We'll keep at that. Sure, keep practicing. Uh, Megan, how about you? What are you what are you cooking up next? Well, we're gonna we're in first quarter of this game. So uh we're we're gonna keep keep it going with the with the house that Rob built and then have some different film ideas in uh, in development that we'll be starting to to look towards production and, and developing even further. Awesome. Well, best of luck with distribution of the film. I'm sure as people, you know, I'm sure this thing will grow. It's such a wonderful story, beautifully told. Uh, congratulations to the two of you. And um, thanks for coming by the show today and sharing some of the story. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Rob.
Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift of UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business, with additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors and Drum Coffee. AJ Williams is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amen, and John Wicks made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends about it. Thanks a lot. See you next time.